Thanks for tuning in to the IGM podcast. We're so glad you've decided to explore God's word with us. We look forward to connecting with you in email at infointegritygm.com or online at our website, www.integritygm.com. We hope this podcast encourages you to grow in the knowledge of God through His Word. Be blessed. Blessings to everyone today in the name of Yeshua the Messiah, in the name of Jesus the Christ. Today we're going to be finishing out 1 Corinthians, and I have Jace with me. Jace comes from Tallahassee, which is down in the southeast part of southern Alabama. And so we're going to be looking at this 16th chapter, which remember from the beginning, there is not the chapter and verse divisions. So we're flowing into final thoughts that Paul has been writing to the Corinthians and some incredible instructions that is still applicable for us today. It is still principles that he's writing that God is giving him to give to the Corinthians and those same principles We want to apply to our lives, to our fellowships in the same way today. And he's going to close out with some instructions. He's going to close out with some understanding of fellow workers in the faith that he's going to recommend to them and how they should treat them. And this is the end of this letter. And I'm kind of setting the background for 2 Corinthians because after he writes this letter, it's not going to be received by everyone in a favorable way. And 2 Corinthians that we're going to be covering starting the next time, the next time we record, is really a defense of Paul's ministry, his life, his integrity, and his apostleship and his right to collect an offering that we're going to see here in these final thoughts as well, an offering that he is collecting for the believers back in Jerusalem and in Judea. This letter that he writes, I would like to say that everything that he is writing is going to be accepted in unity by the church in Corinth, but it's not going to be accepted by everybody, and it's going to cause, I believe, even more factions to develop. And even physical abuse is going to take place that leaders, some leaders within this church are going to slap people in the face and say, you have to be in submission to me. We're going to see this in the second letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians. And so he writes this beautiful letter, but there's still a spiritual struggle that is going on for the spiritual health of the believers, the disciples in the city of Corinth. And remember, people are getting saved from... A Hellenistic background, a very pagan background, a very immoral city, a city that has rich and poor. Remember, this city had 650,000 people, 400,000 of them were slaves, 250,000 of them were free. So you had a gap in the economic understanding of the believers, and believers are getting saved from all kinds of different backgrounds, and he deals with this, but he wants them to understand their identity, not through their economic status or their status as free or a slave, but their identity in Christ. And we see that emphasis through this letter. But there, this is a church that is in trouble, that has a lot of issues that have to be dealt with. And Paul's the apostle. He is an apostle that founded this church. And even his apostleship is under question by some that are in this congregation at this time. So it is what we say in Hebrew, a balagan. That means a mess. That means there's lots of issues. 
but it is worth the battle. It is worth the spiritual battle. And you're going to see in 2 Corinthians that intense battle that Paul has for the believers that they follow the Word of God and that they follow the right teachings and not come under bad teachings. So let's finish out these last thoughts. And Jace, at any time, jump in and make comments, questions, anything that sticks out to you or that comes to your attention. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia or Galatia, so do you also. So remember, if you go back to Acts chapter 11, there was prophesied by Agabus that there would be a famine that would come upon the land. That was around 43, 42, 43 A.D. And between 44 and 46 A.D., there is a famine during the time of Claudius that hits Judea. And so that prophecy did come true. This is several years later in which the believers in Jerusalem, remember, initially they lost everything. And they were under severe attack and persecuted And in Judea, in fact, they had to leave Jerusalem, go to Judea and Samaria initially, and so they lost everything. And so from a financial standpoint, they are in a bad situation, and they they need help. Paul understands this. Paul has traveled back to Judea and seen the situation. So in Galatia, which was the first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14, from these churches he's collected an offering, and now he is talking to Corinth, asking them to collect an offering for the Jewish believers back in Jerusalem and Judea because of their financial situation. And I want to say this, it's a beautiful picture of Gentile believers who have come to faith through the ministry of Jewish believers, and now from a financial standpoint, because of the famine and the persecution back in Jerusalem and Judea, they're collecting an offering to send back to them. It's a beautiful picture of the unity between the Jewish and Gentile believers together as one body. And so Galatia is doing this, the region of Galatia, the first missionary journey, and now here in Corinth, he's asking them to do the same thing. Verse 2, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. So he is writing from Ephesus. Before he goes to Corinth, he's going to go to Macedonia. And from Macedonia, he's going to come down and be in Achaia. And he's going to be in Corinth. So it's going to be some time before he gets there. What he is instructing them to do every Sunday, the first day of the week, and I want to talk about that for a moment, about what became known as the Lord's Day. The Jews gathered on the Sabbath, which was from Friday night to Saturday night, from evening to evening. And that was a day that Jews gathered in the synagogues in order to worship the Lord, to pray, to teach God's Word, to study the Word of God. And we see Paul and Barnabas and Silas and others going into the synagogue to share about the Messiah, the Son of God. And we see them sometimes having success, sometimes there's a few believers, and other times they're kicked out, and then they go to the Gentiles. 
there developed a tradition. And traditions are not bad. Traditions can become bad if they're contrary to God's Word. But there became a tradition of gathering on the first day of the week in order to honor the Lord's resurrection. And so it became known as the Lord's Day. And we see this very clearly in the second century, but here we're seeing a little bit of the development of it. And Jace, it wasn't a Sabbath. It was never meant to replace the Sabbath. And some people started developing that mentality that Sunday is a substitute is for the Christians. That is our Sabbath, and the Jews have their Sabbath on Saturday. But it wasn't understood as a Sabbath. From its pure understanding, it was a day to honor the resurrection. And we see the early church fathers, the second century on, writing to Rome and explaining some of these dynamics. Why do the Christians gather on Sunday? He says, we, they say we do it to honor the Lord's resurrection because he was raised from the dead the first day of the week after the weekly Shabbat on the Feast of First Fruits of Harvest. It was a Sunday. And in order to honor the resurrection, they would gather on Sunday. I'm glad you brought that up just because I've always kind of wondered where that distinction came from, you know, the Saturday versus the Sunday. And also, I guess when I was reading, I was thinking, is this like one of the first recorded Sunday offerings? You know, because we're used to that here. Um, But is that one of the first examples of a Sunday offering? Yes. And it probably corresponded with the time in which they're meeting together. We don't know for sure, but on the first day of the week, when you gather, it doesn't say when you gather, each one of you is to put aside and save, but it would make sense that it would be in a time in which they're gathering together. Yes, true. Now, we see it also in Acts chapter 20, of them gathering on the first day of the week. Again, I want to emphasize that everyone that's listening, it was not a substitute for the Sabbath. It was a gathering together of believers to honor the resurrection and that they would gather together and worship the Lord. Jewish believers would still would have kept the Sabbath. This was not a new Sabbath, but it was a day of gathering for a time of worship, probably in the evening, Saturday evening, which would have been beginning the first day of the week or some time on Sunday that they would have gathered But we see this dynamic growing. And he says to give, not a tithe. You see, under the law, we see the concept of tithing. But not anywhere in the New Covenant Scriptures do you see the instructions to tithe. And I want to make clear, I'm not saying that tithing is, is not something that you should do. But what I'm saying, not even here is he saying, bring your tithe, like we see in the Old Covenant. That is something that was under the law, bringing your tithe. In fact, it predates the law. You see Abraham bringing a tithe, a tenth, to Melchizedek that predates the law. So they could have had the concept of tithing, but he's not saying bringing a, a tithe but to put aside some finances, some money, as he may prosper, according to the income that you are receiving, put aside something for these Jewish believers back in Jerusalem, Judea, so that we can minister to them physically. And so then when he comes, there's already money collected, and he doesn't have to get up and take all the money at that time. They're giving a little bit at a time. So it seems like Paul 
is at least referencing or kind of setting up these principles where a weekly basis or on a consistent basis, I'm putting back money for the Lord. And then maybe also another principle that you do so in relation to your means. Is that, is that right? Yes, I would see this more as an offering. Uh, again, we don't see anywhere the teaching of the tithe in the New Covenant Scriptures, and that's not saying that we should not tithe. I'm just saying it's not something that we see. But the setting aside for an offering to the Jewish believers that are suffering, this is something that we see being done every single week until he gets there. Now, what does that mean? Was that a common practice of every congregation, every church? That's something that we do not know for sure. But this is a instruction that Paul is giving to the believers at Corinth. And then he says, when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. This is extremely important. Let me read verse 4. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. There has to always be accountability with money. And he is saying, we will send them, plural. And when you take up this offering, it's not going to be given to me, and I take it by myself to Jerusalem. You know, there, there's enough issues that would arise just from that and people that would question his integrity if he was doing something like that. So we must see what Paul is saying. You select and men that you may approve, and we will send them to carry the gift to Jerusalem. And if I go with them, I will go with them. But it's not me going by myself. And it's not me that is responsible for this offering. You're giving it. We're going to have accountability, and we will send them. And if I can go as well, I will go with them. So everything that we do with money has to be accountable, and it must be above reproach. And so I never trust a person that says, well, why can't I count the offering by myself? Don't you trust me? And I'd say, no, because you asked the question, then I know I cannot trust you. Because a person that I trust will be a person that will say, no, I'll never count the money by myself. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, that's an interesting. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I kind of missed it, you know, and just thinking about all the problems and, and different dynamics that finances cause, you know, so uh, the wisdom in that and having that accountability. Yeah. Right. And then it takes questions out of the minds of the people that may be thinking, what is Paul up to? Because that's human nature. We never count money by ourselves. We always record with a group. We take it. Uh, we have someone that records the amounts that go in, the expenses, everything. Everything has to be done with accountability. If you have a board that's overseeing your finances, it shouldn't be you and your wife and your son and your daughter-in-law. Right, yes. It has to be a true board that has accountability that is approved. It's beyond reproach. And I think you see this in Paul's uh, writing here that is so important that most people miss. It is not an offering that's given to him and he's taking it with his other workers or by himself to Jerusalem. It's going to be done with accountability. And you trust people that do things in the right way. And so a person, again, that says, oh, don't you trust me? I'd say, absolutely not, because you have the wrong mindset. Right. Because a person with the right mindset would not even allow himself to be put in that situation. They understand those principles. But let's move on. Verse 5, But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, 
for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. And that's exactly what's going to take place from Ephesus to Macedonia, Philippi, and on down to Achaia and down to Corinth. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. He just does not want to just come in and have a few days and leave. This church is too important. And he spent a year and a half in Corinth establishing this church. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Pentecost means 50. It's the Greek word for Shavuot, which is Hebrew. It's 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits of Harvest, which is during the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread that comes right after the day of Passover. So after the weekly Shabbat of that week comes the first day, Sunday is the first fruits of harvest, the day that Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday. 49 Sabbaths later, and the 50th day is Pentecost, which is actually a Sunday in which God pours out his spirit upon the early church. And so you see the importance of Sunday. The resurrection took place on Sunday, and the outpouring of God's Spirit, which was a fulfillment of the prophet Joel, happened on a Sunday as well to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. So he will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. He's going to go through Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits of Harvest, all the way to Shavuot and Greek Pentecost, and then he's going to have this attempt to come to them. For a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So the ministry is very effective, but at the same time, that is building up opposition and persecution. In fact, from Ephesus, he was there two years and three months, which is sometimes stated three years. It says all of Asia was being reached with the gospel through his ministry in Ephesus. It was such a coming to God that that district that is in modern-day Turkey today that is called Asia, that whole district and region, the gospel was going from Ephesus to a city like Colossae. That's how that church probably got started. In other cities, people were hearing about it, traveling into Ephesus. People in Ephesus were burning up their sorcery books and all of their witchcraft, getting rid of their idols. Miracles were being done through Paul in Ephesus. And so all of Asia was being reached with the gospel through Paul's ministry at Ephesus. When I was young, I thought Asia meant the whole continent. But it's really a district in modern-day Turkey today that through that ministry in that city, God was doing supernatural things for that whole district. So with effective ministry comes persecution. That is a consistent precedent that we see within God's Word. We think effective ministry is just always having peace and prosperity and everybody's with us. We're coming from an American mindset many times that we grow up in a culture that is now changing, but when you're doing well, everybody's excited about it. But with his ministry that was very effective, there is building up persecution, adversaries, opposition from every 
uh, angle that's coming against Paul. Verse 10, now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. So this is interesting about Timothy. And we see this concept of Timothy and fear many times. And we look at Paul's last letter, or one of his last letters, when he says to Timothy, Timothy, God has not given you a spirit of timidity or fear, but a spirit of love, power, and a sound mind. So when you look at that, he's concerned about Timothy. Maybe Timothy was a very timid individual. And you see Paul saying that to Timothy towards the end of his life. And here we see him emphasizing it about Timothy, that I'm sending Timothy when he comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid. Maybe Paul sees his personality just trying to make an understanding of this, that he's a very timid individual and he's preparing them for this personality that's coming. I was just curious, would this have anything to do with some of the divisions that already existed as far as, you know, you had these factions about who they followed and this guy and this guy and this guy, you know, does that have any bearing on why he would need to commend him, don't harm him? Yes, I I do believe. And if he's already a, a timid, not very forceful individual, not one ready to go into a battle, and he's sending Timothy, he is saying, don't let him receive him without cause to be afraid. Because there are factions, there are divisions, there is going to be a response to this letter that's not always favorably. Some will, but others are going to rise up and say, who is this Paul? Who gives him a right to collect an offering here? Who says he's an apostle? You even see this in this letter that some are kind of questioning his apostleship. We cannot trust this guy. Timothy is going to be sent into a very divisive situation in Corinth. And so you bring up a very good point, Jace, that it may not just be his personality, it could be part of it, but also what he's walking into. Yeah, yes. I don't want to, don't let me get you off track, but can I backtrack to verse yes. nine? Um, so I was just curious, I'm thinking about some of my own struggles and those I know in the ministry. Is there a connection here to the timing of ministry, you know, when to continue, when to, when to stop? When you think about the two things he mentions, there's an opposition to the gospel and then there's an effectiveness. So there's a combination here of victory and struggle kind of going on. And he says, even though I want to come to you, that's worth staying for. You know, does that kind of give us, again, parameters for how to do this ourselves or how to approach it? Well, when I look at Paul's ministry, it wasn't necessarily the outward circumstances that was dictating where he would go and where he would stay. I really think that he was a man that wanted to be in the center of God's will. Sometimes he understood the opposition was so strong he needed to leave. So say in Thessalonica, he left. Philippi, he was beaten, thrown into prison, And then when they found out he was a Roman citizen, they begged him to leave. But he didn't leave immediately. He went back to Lydia's house. And it doesn't say how long he stayed, but then he left. So I really don't know how to answer that question, Jace. Mm -hmm. But a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. 
So I see that the effect of ministry is bringing about opposition. But how does he really understand that? Should he stay or should he go? He does have a plan to stay there until Pentecost and then to come. And there's nothing wrong with plans because think about when he went to Macedonia, his plan was to go up to Bithynia, which was an opposite direction. He had a plan, but in a vision, he had this vision of this man from Macedonia calling him to come here. He understood that that was the will of God for him to go to Macedonia. That's how the church in Philippi was established. So he had plans, but he also always talks about God willing, if it's the Lord's will. Here he plans to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, and then to come, to go to Macedonia, and then from Macedonia down to Corinth, and hopefully spend a winter there, not just coming for a quick visit, but to spend some time with you. And uh, but at any time, God could change that plan. Right. And I don't want to stretch, mm-hmm. you know, what the intent here is to fit the application. Yeah. I'm just kind of curious if this could be a guide in that way. Right. I think it's a great question, but it's something that I don't have any problem saying I don't know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I've got a lot of that. So. so it's something that we can look at it and look at the broad spectrum of his life and really look at it. And he was a man constantly, God, what is your will? Lord willing, I will come to you. Verse 12, but concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Now, this is important because some people have tried to put a division between Apollos and Paul. And you do not see that in Paul's writings. Paul is one that is upholding the ministry of Apollos. But in the first chapter, you see, some say that you are of of Cephas, some of Apollos, some of uh, Paul. Some say, I don't have anything to do with any of them. We are of Christ. And so you see these divisions, and one of the divisions that we have in the church is through the ministry of Apollos. Not that Apollos developed it, not that Paul did, not that Peter developed it. But in a natural context of Hellenistic culture, they have a tendency to group themselves according to a philosopher. That was a Hellenistic culture. Paul, when he went to Athens, he goes up to the Areopagus and he begins to preach. What do people do at the Areopagus? They come and they listen and they want to see, does this new person have a philosophy that I want to follow? Naturally, the culture tries to divide around a person. And what Paul is saying is not about Apollos, it's not about me, it's not about Peter, it is about Christ. He is the head. He is the one that the foundation is Christ, and we build upon that foundation. Be careful how you build. But not at any point is there a problem between Paul and Apollos. And you see this. Let's read verse 12 again. But concerning Apollos, our brother, he's not an enemy. He's not in confrontation with Paul. Our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. That is showing the unity between Paul and Apollos. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men, be strong. Now, Jace, we're living in a very feminized culture 
here in America, in the Western culture, where men are not to act like men. They call it, what, toxic masculinity. Now, he's talking to men spiritually, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Part of masculinity, part of being a leader as men is standing strong in the faith, being strong, and not backing down. And this is something Paul wanted Timothy to see in his life. Timothy, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and of a sound mind. You keep going forward. You keep fighting the good fight. Don't back away. That fear doesn't come from God. Paul is saying this to the men at Corinth. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men, men of God. Be strong. Part of being a man is to be a leader. That's how God designed us to be strong, stand firm, and act like men. Now, that will not be accepted by all that's listening now. No, absolutely not. But that's the Word of God. And so it's something that we should encourage our men to lead, be strong, stand firm. And with the things of God, we're not talking about a physical battle, but we're talking about a spiritual battle that men need to stand strong and they need to lead. Let all that you do be done in love. So the love of God is going to live within the hearts of these men within this church and let it be done with love, love for God, love for the body of Christ, love for others, even love for our enemies. Let it all be done in love. Now, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. And I think when he says the first fruits of Achaia, he's talking about in Corinth, because you're also looking at Athens, and there were some that believed in Athens. But here, I think he's focused on Corinth and what happened in Corinth. And if you go back to the first chapter, I'm trying to remember, he baptized Crispus and Gaius, and then he remembered, oh, also the household of Stephanus. So Paul did not come baptizing. That was, he, he was preaching Christ and him crucified. People were getting saved. People were receiving the Spirit of God. And it wasn't a focus upon baptism. But he did baptize some, Gaius, Crispus, and Stephanus and his whole household. Stephanus and his household were some of the first believers in Corinth and Achaia that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. So he's saying, Stephanus is a man of God and his whole family. They were some of the first fruits. They were the first fruits of Achaia. And Paul even baptized them and they have good ministry. So he is building a team, Timothy, Apollos, Stephanus. He's not going at it alone. He's wanting them to see this network of believers that are in unity, ministers of the gospel, and they should be in submission to them. They should listen to what they are saying. These are men that have proved themselves in the work of God. And that's important, Jace, because sometimes we like to be an island, and sometimes we have to be the only voice that's out there. But Paul's always building a team around him. He's always ministering with a team. He's always building up younger ones, whether it's Timothy or Titus or Silas, and he went with Barnabas and others. He's got 
a team of Aquila, Priscilla, or Prisca, and others, that he's not by himself. And it's always from an accountability standpoint, from an effectiveness and ministry, it is always better to build a team around you. And Paul did this his whole ministry. It seems like it's bringing together a couple of things, you know, the accountability that you just talked about, and, and maybe even just to share some of the burden, um, but also to be intentional about discipleship. You know, like yes. you said, the next generation. Right. Um, and it seems like Paul, everywhere he went, of course, was intent on that. Yes, and Jesus did the same thing. Right. Yeah, he had the 12, he had the 3, he had the 12, he had the 70. Yeah. So always traveling, ministering as a team is a part of discipleship. We think discipleship is listening to this podcast or going to a class yeah. where we listen to a Bible study. It's really about living the faith together. And this is what Paul is always doing as much as he can to minister with a team. And look, those team members continue and grow. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. Let me say that again. Laura will edit it out. And Achaicus, because they were supplied what was lacking on your part. They have something to give spiritually, I believe, that is lacking on your part. So here's more members of this team that is ministering together. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. Paul's not out to get all the attention upon himself. It's about the work of God and spreading the work around. And let's work together. Let's minister together. Let's disciple together. And they refresh my spirit and yours. So he's recommending them. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartedly in the Lord with the church that is in their house, the congregation, the assembly that is in their house. Do you know we don't even have a church building until probably the 4th century A.D.? So they gathered in homes. They gathered in, uh, in Jerusalem at the temple and in people's homes. The temple, they were proclaiming Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. But in the homes, they're breaking bread, having fellowship, listening to the apostles' teachings, those kind of things. So really, when we understand the body of Christ, it is not about the building, it's the people. And most of the people of that day were gathering in someone's home. And today we have this concept, well, let's go to church. Let's go to a building. And we have these big facilities. And we get there and we associate the church with a building. The assembly, the church, was gathered at their home. The people were gathered at their home. And most of the early gatherings were in people's home. Yeah, we, you know, we actually experimented with that this past summer, I think it was, or uh, maybe a few months prior to that. And whether right or wrong, there's just something about when we were in the homes that the dynamic changes. You know, it seems like the, uh, the fellowship was greater, uh, the participation level is greater, and for some reason, at least here, uh, you know, it seems like we come into the church and I'm more of a bystander. You know, I just sit there and listen. But Yes, I agree. And it's more informal. It's more, I think, uh, discipleship that can take place. In many places of the world, they're forced to have this type of gathering 
in secret in people's homes, sometimes even in wildernesses or in the forest or places that only certain people know that they gather and it's done very secretly because of the persecution. But I love the home gathering. The biggest obstacle of the home gathering in the Western culture is the lack of discipline of the kids. And I'm just going to throw that out to people because I have been in, spoken in so many home uh, meetings, fellowships, and the children are not disciplined, and it's very hard to have a home gathering because of the children. So I'm saying that to the parents, discipline your children, bring them together, let them sit on the ground and let them listen, or sit in a chair and listen. They don't have to be entertained the whole time. India, we can do this. Other parts of the world, they can do this. But in America, it becomes very difficult. Yeah, it's quite the struggle. So the home church. Aquila is mentioned here first, probably because in that culture, sometimes you see Priscilla mentioned before Aquila in the book of Acts because there were times that she was probably more of the spokesperson, but she's always ministering under the authority of Aquila. But here you see Aquila mentioned before Prisca, his wife here, probably because he's leading that group that's meeting in their home. Even though Prisca is being used, she speaks. She is used by God in speaking and teaching the Word of God. And we see that in the book of Acts. The next verse, And the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now remember, he's writing to Corinth, a city that is very immoral. So he identifies what type of kiss a holy kiss, a kiss of honor, men kissing men, women, women. And it's a kiss on the cheek. If you go to Russia, it's a kiss on the mouth. And I, I've been to Russia, and I've never been kissed on the mouth by a man before, and I praise God for that. Yes. So, But in that culture, in the synagogue, men would kiss men on the cheek, women to women. A holy kiss, a kiss that shows greetings, brotherhood, sisterhood, but done in a decent way. Corinth was a very indecent culture, so I think it is important that he says with a holy kiss to identify we don't kiss like they kiss. We do it in a way that honors God. The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. So Paul's not the one that is writing the letter, but he's dictating the letter, but the greeting is in his own hand. And we see that in several of Paul's writings. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be anathema, accursed. That's a given. And then he uses the word maranatha, which means, O Lord, come. That is the cry of the bride for the bridegroom. That is the cry of the church. If you go to the end of the book of Revelation, the spirit and the bride say, come. It is the spirit of God that yearns for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the bride, the body of Christ, that yearns for the coming of the bridegroom. And so the heart of the church is, come, Lord Jesus. O Lord, come. That's what Maranatha means. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. May love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let it be so. So he's closing out this very difficult letter through chapters that are so incredible about a church that is in a lot of trouble that they should have grown up and been mature by this time, but they're still babes. They should be eating meat, but they're still drinking milk. It's about progressive sanctification, 
Sanctification is both instant and progressive. We are a new creation in Christ, but we're babies, and we have to grow up. And from many different circumstances, since Paul left Corinth and went to Ephesus, there have been situation after situation that has come into the body of Christ that's not honoring Christ, and it's time to get all of that junk, all of that rubbish, all of that trash, all of the, these immature ways of thinking out of the church at Corinth so that they can be mature and have a strong witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's writing these, this letter to deal with these situations, hoping and praying that they will receive it and they will say, Amen. Yes, let it be so. However, that's not going to be the case. And again, I'm setting the background for Paul's next letter, because there is going to be opposition when he writes this letter. I have thought in times in the past, Jace, when I've preached and I've known a certain situation within the church, and you have this vision that you're going to preach to it, and everybody's going to repent, and everybody's going to say amen, and sometimes you see just the reverse. You knew that you spoke the truth in love, and you gave them what you felt was the Word of God for that situation, but others didn't see it that way. And it became a very strong opposition that builds up. Now, here in America, they say, don't ever speak to a specific situation. Jace just got a seminary. He might have been taught that. Don't ever speak to a specific situation because of the trouble that it brings. But think about what Paul's doing. Paul's receiving reports from Chloe He's not going indirectly. He's writing directly back to the church of these problems that are in the church. He's teaching them. He's preaching them specifically to the situations that are happening. Every prophet, every man of God, every person used by God, Jesus himself, our Lord and Savior, confronts the culture specifically on what's going on. So don't ever be afraid. If God has given you wisdom from above, giving you a word about a specific situation to speak truth into that specifically, but do not think that you're going to have always a positive reaction. And one of my favorite phrases is, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you really mad. That's right. (laughs) But it will set you free. And so sometimes people get mad. They get angry when they hear the truth. Sometimes I've gotten mad when someone has spoken truth into my life, and I think, who is he to say this to me? But then when you start dwelling on it, and you think, that person really loves me, and what they're saying is true. I got mad, but then I embraced the truth, and the truth does what? It sets us free. And I'm just thinking, you know, practically speaking, the more specific, the better. When I'm not specific, it allows me to kind of wiggle out of it. You know, okay, that doesn't really apply to me. But being very specific, the impact is there. Now, whether you react positively or negatively, sometimes it depends. Right. The only thing that I would say, be sensitive and using the pulpit to beat people up that you're angry at. Yes, wisdom in that. Yes. So check your own heart, your own motives. Check everything that you're doing, and if there is anything that is a hesitancy that maybe I have the wrong motives and the wrong way of doing things, just stop right there and just begin to pray and say, God, you give me the right words, because it's the body of Christ that Paul's writing to. It's his brothers in the Lord, 
it is one family, and he wants to see them come out of this rubbish and come into a clear understanding of a great testimony for Christ in Corinth and in all of Achaia. And so that is his goal. And so it's not going to be received by everybody. By some, yes. But here's the founder of this church that's going to come under even greater opposition after this first letter. But he did the right thing. He honored God, and he spoke truth into their lives. And that's going to set us up for 2 Corinthians. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. I pray that what we were teaching and seeing, that it comes across clearly to those that are listening. And Lord, I just pray that we'll take the principles of this letter and not be like some in Corinth and get upset and mad and angry and try to create division. But Lord, let us hear the word of God and let us take these principles and place them into our hearts and let us live by your word. And let us walk by the word of God in everything that we do. Let your word be hid within our hearts that we may not sin against you. And thank you, God, for this letter that we have. And let us know it inside and out and let these principles live within our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to learn more about IGM or have any questions about this podcast, feel free to reach out to us at info at integritygm.com and connect with us on Instagram at integrity underscore global and Facebook at Integrity Global Missions. If you like our podcast, please share it and leave a review. Thank you for listening. Have a blessed day.